Well, today's message is truly a message of grace. However, you may not think so at first. The children, yes, they're being dismissed right now. Sorry about that, kids. It is a message of grace, but let's see if you think so. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, the first six verses this morning. I would invite you to turn in your Bible or on your device to that passage, because we're going to take our way down there, because today, this is a sermon on being judgmental. Now, one of the hardest things in preaching a sermon on being judgmental is not being judgmental. As I was sharing with Jamie Pittman about it uh, before, earlier today, he said, yeah, it's sort of like this, I'm not as judgmental as the other guy, right? So perhaps when I'm done, you may even want to say, well, who made you the judge? But have you ever had someone ask you that question? Who made you the judge? Maybe you confronted a loved one in response to a destructive choice they were making. Or maybe you disagreed with them on a moral issue. And there came the accusation, judgmental. Sometimes in an age of individualized choice with self-satisfaction as the rule, it's easy to throw that accusation around. We also can't shy away from the truth that sometimes we in the church are too often known for what we're against than for what we're for. I just think we need to be honest about that. Sometimes... We are too known at times for tearing others down, even in the name of Jesus, out of fear over how their choices uh, or their lifestyle or their political leaning or their values will hurt our view of the world. And maybe we even respond when we're in those kind of circumstances, well, well, I'm not judgmental. Well, let me ask this question. Will anyone who has never wrongfully judged another person please stand up? I just don't want to be standing at that point. (laughs) And yet, Jesus Christ did say that we are to make judgments about character that we observe. A few verses further, in verses 16 through 18, he says, by their fruit you will recognize them. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. What do we do with this? When we read those words from Jesus, though, I also think we need to be Beware of misusing them to grant permission to condemn others. So, does all this mean that there is not a time to hold people accountable for behaviors and attitudes that are sinful 
or hurtful or selfish. Of course not. It doesn't mean that. But it does require a great deal of grace. And we'll come back to that. But here's the truth. Every one of us are tempted toward a judgmental spirit. I don't know how it works for you. It may not even be with the words or the actions. Sometimes it's just the narrative that we keep playing in our minds about other people. And we just hold on to that narrative and we lock into that narrative and then those people will never become anything more than that narrative. That's one of the temptations I know I face. Well, let's, let's, let's give a basic definition to being judgmental. Okay, now this is a paraphrase of some other sources of what does it mean to be judgmental? I could come up with my own, I'm sure you could. But let's use this one today. Constantly finding fault with others in a spirit of superiority that we believe entitles us to assess the lives of others. That we believe entitles us to assess and judge the lives of others. To have a corrective spirit towards others. The truth is we are all prone to make superficial judgments, measuring people by our own filters of approval and then failing to see them as image bearers. You know, as Jamie said, as he was sharing earlier, this, these weeks of Lent, as we've been going through these 40 days, these have been challenging. Challenging. But they've been forming and shaping as well, and this is no exception. We are prone to make superficial judgments Measuring people against our own filters. Failing to see them. I'm going to quote a number of people today, but this is a lengthy quote, but I, there's just no way I can give this to you without giving you the whole thing. Scott Sauls writes about this, and he finds me out, finds us out when he writes this. We are all prone toward moralism and wrongly motivated rule-keeping. If you are a conservative, especially a religious one, you may feel superior to those who aren't as religious or conservative as you are. On the other hand, if you are a tolerant progressive, you may feel superior to and intolerant of those who appear intolerant and conservative by your standards. In your superiority, whether you are conservative or progressive, you are basing your worth as a person on how right you are compared to those who are not right according to your particular laws or rules. You okay back there? I, I heard that. Do we have a nurse in the house? Some pain back there. Your laws can include anything, such as how to be a good Christian, or how to parent well, or how to dress properly, and so on. You may also find yourself measuring yourself and others on the basis of intellect, income bracket, race, culture, place of residence. This one I don't like. Driving skills. Ever get road rage? I guess road rage is a form of being judgmental, right? Or even how people eat a bowl of soup or squeeze a tube of toothpaste. That's a little too close to home. What is Jesus saying to us this morning? 
That's the most important word probably for us. I can't improve upon John Stott's great words in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. Jesus does not tell us to cease to be human by suspending our critical powers, which help to distinguish us from animals, but to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. He's not saying, you know, stop being human with your ability to be critically thinking people and, you know, observing and all those things, because we see Jesus said we're to observe character. The question is, how can I be generous with others, renouncing the presumptuous ambition to be God? How can I be generous with others, renouncing my ambition to be in control of everyone and everything and be God? Well, if you keep reading in Matthew chapter 7, you come to what's universally known as the golden rule. And if you go out on the street today, someone will give you some form or fashion of the golden rule, whether they go to church or not. In everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. There's only one other place we find where the law and the prophets are summed up. You know these words. We keep finding our way back to them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything about the Christian faith hangs on this. That's what he's saying. So the golden rule is golden because it is about expressing generous love for others. But this morning, I want to give to you, as we continue through Matthew 7, the chromium rule. Okay? Because chromium is the hardest metal in existence. They build stainless steel with chromium. Right? Chromium is hard. Nothing is harder. And in some ways, the chromium rule of verse 2 of Matthew 7 is incredibly hard. In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what Jesus does is he takes for these people, he gives them a word picture of ancient scales. You know, the scales of commerce. He's suggesting that we're to think of our relationships in terms of scales, the set of scales, especially those that we may not agree with. When we place the weight of our judgment on others, we must be prepared for that same weight to be used in judging us. And really, those words are actually a call to be liberal in generous grace toward one another. You may have heard of something called the Ignatian plus sign, but this expresses that. Ignatius said this, it should be presupposed that every good Christian ought to be more eager to put a good interpretation on a neighbor's statement than to condemn it. He goes on to say that if correction is needed, that needs to be done with humility and love, not with harshness and condemnation. We would call that perhaps the benefit of the doubt, which isn't 
pretending nothing's wrong. But maybe practicing some of the chromium rule, the implications of it. So I must ask this question then when I read those verses. How do I judge others? Or maybe this. Do I want others to judge me the way I judge them? Think right now of the person right now that you just are frustrated with. Do I want aren't to judge me the way I judge them? Do I want people to see me in the way I see them? Do I want people to represent me the way I represent them? You see, these kinds of questions help us to look at those around us differently. But yes, having said all that, there is a time and a place to address concerns or correction in relationships. And to help us understand that, what that's about in some ways. We're not going to go be able to go deep into that, but Jesus actually gives us an absurd word picture. And you know these words. He goes on, verse 3, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. My guess is that this hyperbole from Jesus probably drew laughter in his day. It's kind of absurd, actually. A speck of sawdust. Can can you see this speck of sawdust? You can't. Well, I don't actually have a speck of sawdust, but if I had one, you wouldn't be able to see it. And if you did, you could barely see it. And Jesus is saying, that's the faults of others. They're as big as a speck. It's easy to be quick to look at the faults, failures, mistakes, and sins of others. In fact, it's easy to become an expert in the sins of others right? The little speck. But there's this obvious problem. While you're looking at that speck, there's a two by ten coming out of your face. I mean, just get the word picture, right? Speck of sawdust, you know, big old plank. Here's the other problem. Sometimes others see it. It also hinders us from seeing others. And worst of all, we may be prone to act as if our plank is not real compared to the speck of sawdust. And we do what Jaron Rowell suggests, I think, one of the reasons why we do that. He says, in order to make ourselves look better or just to feel better, we become experts in criticism. Right? There was a commercial a long time ago about a woman. Um, It was a commercial about cancer. And this woman had a poisonous snake wrapped around her body. Just imagine that, this poisonous snake wrapped around you. Big old poisonous snake. And another woman saw this, and and she was kind of startled, and she said, you know, what are you going to do about that? And she goes, the woman said, oh, oh, that, it's nothing. Poisonous snake. 
Those of you who don't like snakes don't like this part at all of the message. The startled woman, though, looks at the, the other woman and says, don't you think you should have it looked at? And the woman says, oh, it's okay. I really don't have time right now. And the point of the commercial was is that you have to deal with your cancer before it's too late. And you know, before it's too late, we need to be honest about a judgmental spirit. Because one of the greatest temptations we encounter that Jesus is really referring to is the temptation to deflect away from our own character flaws and our own mistakes and our own failures and our own sins. It's so much easier, man, to grade others. It's so much easier. Then I don't have to look at myself. Right? But here's the conundrum of that. Catherine McNeil writes, it's not always to tell, easy to tell the good guys from the bad guys. There's a plank in our own eye, but we only see the speck in everyone else's. Jesus hung out with all sorts of strange folk, but it was the good, successful, and proper people he confronted the most. So while we're holding all those bad people in judgment, we may need to pause a moment before we discover who the bad people really are. And he's really saying that you've got to look in the mirror. There's a warning in Scripture about this that we need to heed. After describing in great detail the consequences of sin in the lives of others, Paul the Apostle writes this in Romans 2. You who pass judgment on someone else, at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So, loving our neighbors as ourselves in this starts with the junk in my own life. Right? Where am I falling short of the glory of God? Scripture does say we all fall short of the glory of God. Where am I falling short of the glory of God? And when that happens, when I start addressing that, something happens when I begin there. Nicholas Bertoli wrote this, Perhaps a helpful intention this Lent season would be to surrender enough of our defensiveness to see the world a little more the way God sees it. Instead of quickly summarizing a person by our mental image of them, let's just take a moment to drop our judgments and hold them in God's love. And here's the part that gets me, right? Instead of entertaining ourselves with ongoing narratives about a person in our heads, let's drop the stories and focus on the real human being in front of us. And when that happens, Jesus tells us what will happen. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He's not saying we shouldn't remove the speck but we then can do so. Here is the spirit of what Jesus is saying in Galatians chapter 6, this paraphrase. If someone really is caught in a sin, the spiritual ones among you are the ones to restore him. Do it in a lowly and non-presumptuous spirit, considering yourselves, lest you too be put to the test. Feel the weight others are feeling, and then you will fulfill Christ's teaching. 
My friends, nothing, I don't know about you, but nothing is more irritating than when you have something in your eye. Nothing. And nothing is more compassionate than someone getting that speck out of your eye. But it does require gentleness and deliberate care. You've got to be careful with that eye. So questions that Jaron Rowell goes on to pose about our judgment of others, I think, capture what Jesus is trying to teach us here. What is your motive? How is the tenderness of your spirit towards this person? What will it mean to be merciful to him or her as the Lord has been merciful to you? We all talk about grace and mercy, and we often think they're the same thing. And they're two, they're two sides of the same coin. But grace, grace is this. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. And mercy is this, not receiving what you do. So when he says, what will it mean to be merciful to him or her as the Lord has been merciful to you? How has the Lord been so merciful to me, not giving me what I deserve? That's how I'm supposed to approach this. So how am I doing with that? Well, Jesus just kind of ramps up the conversation in, in verses 1 through 6 of Matthew 7, and he comes to his most extreme metaphor. Do not give dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. Well, of course, Jesus, we wouldn't do that. It sounds strange to us unless we look at it from the perspective of his original hearers because we need to remember this. Dogs and pigs were repulsive to the Jews of Jesus' day. And the idea of putting something holy on them or giving, you know, making something holy before them suggests a waste of time. Too often this has been interpreted to talk about how we're wasting our time doing this to this person or that to this person, but that's not what I think Jesus is saying here. This is not wasting of your holy perspective and amazing spirituality, so to speak, but it's a wasting of time trying to fix someone with your holy perspective and amazing spirituality because we're not intended to try to fix people. The Bible tells us this. In 1 Corinthians 3, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What does that teach me in this context? Simply this, we need to carefully think about not placing Christian expectations on non-Christians. We need to be careful about that. Not placing Christian expectations on non-Christians. Now, as we saw from the words of Jesus, there is a place for correcting or confronting when choices made or attitudes held or actions embraced are destructive to that person or to someone else or to ourselves. But you see, these pigs are helpful teachers. You can learn a lot from a pig. The idea of throwing pearls to pigs 
is a picture of a pig farmer throwing the food, throwing the slop out to feed the pigs. And those people knew that, and Jesus knew that, and that's why he used the illustration. Because you see, pigs will eat just about anything. When I was in college, I worked for a dairy. My first job was at Sinton's Dairy in Carwell Springs. And I remember we used to drag spilled and spoiled and bad milk, cottage cheese, yogurt, you know, ice cream base, all this stuff. We'd drag it out. It'd be hot out. We'd bring it to the loading dock, and the local pig farmer would come. By the way, I don't think they're allowed to do that anymore. So your pork chop today is going to be okay. All right? We used to drag it out there, and the pig farmer would come. He'd take it all, cardboard stuff, all of it. And literally, he would just go over to his farm and shovel it into the pig pen. Because pigs will eat just about anything. However, the digestive system of pigs is not made to eat pearls. So trying to make pigs eat pearls is not only a waste of time, it is cruel. It is not a compassionate thing to do. Placing, um, I mean, if you have a dog and you go home and you go home and you place some holy expectations on your dog, you need to know. That's not like, one, not going to work. Secondly, that's not being very kind to your dog. So you see, when we force our, when we force our faith or our view or our perspective on others with a judgmental spirit, or we live with an elitist mentality or a self-righteousness, and we fail to take responsibility for our own junk by being experts in the junk of others, people may respond as Jesus suggested. He said, if you do this, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. They might just completely trample your faith, reject your faith, turn from your faith, my faith. One of my favorite quotes from Dallas Willard is this. Being right is actually a very hard burden to be able to carry gracefully and humbly. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and to not hurt people with it. One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not to hurt people with it. So where do we land with these hard words from Jesus today? I'm going to ask our worship team if they'll go ahead and make their way to the front with me here tonight, today. Where do we land? Well, we saw what Paul said in Romans 2 about not being judgmental because of our own lives. But he goes on in verse 4 and he gives us these beautiful words. I love these words that point to the provenient grace of God, the grace of God that goes before toward all of us. But he says this, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see, when we take it upon ourselves to take God's place as judge, Paul's saying we show contempt 
for the kindness of God. Not contempt even necessarily for the person, though that's true too, but we're showing contempt for the very kindness and grace of God that we say is so amazing. But here's the beautiful piece. This is the beautiful piece. It is his kindness and his patience that led you and led me that leads all of us to turn to him. And the truth is this, and this is what I think is running underneath all of what Jesus is saying today. Jesus loves you and me, each one of us, not just when we are our best and most holy, but when we are our worst and least holy. Not when we're wonderful and kind and gracious, but when we're unkind and we're not gracious and we're not so wonderful. He loves us even then. Verse 8 of Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's part of what Lent is about. It's sitting with that truth that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So where do we land with this? Well, why don't we land at the place where we come face to face with not how God deals with the sins or the mistakes or the failures of that person over there, but how God deals with my sin, my failures, my shame, our sin, our failures, our shame. And that's what the Lord's table is about. Here at the Lord's table, it's not just a place where we practice a ritual that's been handed down to us from generation to generation, from century to century. All across the globe, there will be people gathered around a table of some kind today, partaking in elements of some kind today. And there's one thing that they must do that we must do. Paul tells us when he's talking about the proper way to participate in the sacrament of communion. He says this in 1 Corinthians 11. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So let us come to the table that points to the grace that none of us deserves, but are all invited to by a Savior with outstretched arms. But let us first come asking God to examine our hearts, to examine our spirits. I don't know if you carry a judgmental spirit, but we're all prone and tempted that way. And if there's some way in which you need to ask God to forgive you for a judgmental, corrective spirit, then I invite you to do that before we partake together in communion. Let's just bow our heads and our hearts together today. And let's just be still and let's be silent for a moment. And let's do as Scripture says.
and examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Oh God, we just come to you today and we ask that you would meet each and every one of us. We pray, Lord God, that you would, as we come in confession to you, forgive our judgmental spirits, our corrective attitudes. Lord, we pray that you will cleanse us of the narratives that we set up in our mind that tear people down making them less than image bearers for whatever reason. Lord, give us grace to be able to correct and confront and deal with challenges in our relationships. Help us, Lord God, to be people who are able to relieve the speck from our brother or sister's eyes while being attentive and aware of our own big plank of failures and faults and sins. Lord, grant us a generous spirit to one another. We can't do this apart from you. Lord, we need the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit of God to speak deeply to us. We need what only your grace can do, which is change us. And we need what only your mercy gives us, which is grace. So Lord, thank you today for the word of the Lord. May we be formed and shaped in your image by it. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take the elements of communion and pull back the first layer. And let us remember today that on the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his followers. And he said, this is my body given for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Oh, what great grace and oh, what great mercy. Jesus gave himself for us. None of us is worthy of that. But all of us are recipients of that. Thanks be to God. Let us partake of the bread. Jesus then took the cup, and again he gave thanks to the Father. And he gave the cup to his disciples. 
He said, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of many. And then likewise, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let us thank God for the forgiveness of sins he has offered to us. And let us, as those forgiven, walk into the world in a countercultural manner as people who offer forgiveness. Let us be the people of generous grace, one to another and to our world, in the power and the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us partake in this cup. Lord, we just thank you today for your word. As we've walked these days through these passages in the Sermon on the Mount, we want to thank you for what your word's saying to us, what your word is doing in us. Help us, Lord God. Help us not to compartmentalize this faith of ours, but rather help us to apply our lives to your word, to bend our lives around your word. We can only do that by your grace and your spirit's power. Today we pray for grace to do just that with this message today. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your mercy to us. May we, in turn, Go and be and do likewise. In Jesus' name.